Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com. Here is this week's teaching. Good morning, New Life. It's so good to see you. Happy New Year to those of you that we haven't seen yet in 2023, whether you're in the room or joining us online at the jail or at the prison. We are so glad that you are joining us and so glad that we get to be here together today. There are a lot of us here, even though there's a lot of sickness going around. So yay, I'm glad you're all here. My name is Pastor Karen. I am one of the pastors on staff here. I run life groups and women's ministry and I'm just super excited to be here this morning. I am feeling a little weary. Anyone else in the room coming out of December and just feeling a little bit like that? Only me? Okay. All right. I'm the, okay, me and Zach. That's it. All right. Two of us are feeling weary. I'm glad the rest of you are energized and ready for this new year. This right here was my first car. Not this one exactly, but a car just like this, a bright blue Pontiac Sunfire. I picked it out the summer after I graduated high school. And my parents lived in Hawaii, so my grandfather, who lived in Pennsylvania, went to the car lot and actually did the purchasing on my behalf. And then he and my grandmother drove the car from Pennsylvania to Indiana, where I was going to college. Now, I learned to drive in Hawaii where it doesn't snow. So people who knew more about these things than me told me, if you really don't know how to drive in snow, you should get a stick shift car. It handles better in the snow. This is what I was told, so that's what I purchased. Except that I didn't know how to drive a stick shift car. (laughs) So my grandparents drive this car to Indiana. They have one afternoon to give me a crash course on driving a manual transmission. And then they're headed back out to Pennsylvania. Well, let me just tell you, at the end of that afternoon, I had no more of a clue how to drive this car than I did at the beginning of the afternoon. I did not get it at all. But never fear, because I had a whole campus full of boys who were just gunning to teach this young girl how to drive this car. So friend after friend tries to teach me how to drive my car. And I just couldn't get it, guys. Like, I could not figure out the feel of the clutch, and I would, like, jerk and buck and stall at every stop sign. It was pathetic. And I do not like failing. So I decided that rather than fail, I'd just quit. Quitting is easier. Felt a little less risky to me. So I parked the car in the uh, parking lot behind the dorm and just left it. Decided I'm just not going to drive it because I can't. I'm going to quit. And so the car sat there for weeks. Actually, it may have been like two months (laughs) that my car sat completely undriven because I couldn't drive it and I couldn't bring myself to get motivated to do it. But eventually, the feel of the pain of the money that I had put into this car started to tug at me. Like, you put a lot of money into this car and it's just sitting there. Also, you have a car. Most of your freshman friends don't have a car, but you can't go anywhere because you don't know how to drive this car. So eventually I was able to muster the motivation and I thought, I'm not gonna let anybody else come and see this mess. I'm gonna do it. And so I did. I went out. And I worked and I worked and eventually I figured out how to use that clutch and how to drive my car. The reward of being able to drive my car and the pain of feeling that I was wasting my money if I didn't motivated me to act. 
This is the time of year where we talk a lot about pain and rewards, right? At the start of the year, we consider the pain of the previous year, right? Maybe it's, oh, I put on five pounds last year, or I got out of shape. I can't go up the stairs without getting out of breath, or I lost touch with my spouse, or I lost touch with God, right? We think back and we think, what is painful in the previous year? And then we think forward to this new year and we think, what do I want at the end of this year? What is the reward that if I put in the work this year, maybe I could lose that five pounds and get in shape. Maybe I could get closer to my spouse or maybe I could get closer to God. And so we start to make a plan. Many of us do what's called New Year's resolutions, right? We start to make this list of these are the things I'm going to do this year so that I can achieve this goal by the end of the year. And we start to make a plan for that. We're not all successful, right? I saw this post on Facebook. Friends, already gave up on my New Year's resolution, bought this without realizing there was no Mountain Dew cup holder. Let my weight gain be your weight loss, $450 or best offer will deliver in Gillette. Okay, don't wanna throw him under the bus. This was posted by one of our board members. His name happens to rhyme with Fevi Fisic, but okay. <laughs> This was posted on January 1st, <laughs> on January 1st. He already hadn't achieved his goal, right? So why is it that some of us succeed in reaching our goals and some of us don't make it one day into the new year and we've already given up and said, forget it. Why is it that one person is motivated to make it to the finish line and another loses motivation early in the race? Why is it that some of us let that metaphorical brand new car sitting in the parking lot undriven for weeks on end and other times that same person is going to bust their booty to make sure that whatever they've set their mind to, they're going to get it done? Why is it that sometimes we don't reach our goals and sometimes we do? Let's take it one step further. Have you ever asked yourself a question like this? Why do I eat Doritos? Like, I know they're junk food and empty calories. They're not really helping me any. Why do I eat them? Or why is it that I look at social media or binge watch Netflix or whatever it is that you waste your time on? Why do I do this for hours on end when I know it's not adding any value to my life? Why do I sleep in instead of getting up on Sunday morning and going to worship? I know which is better for me, and yet I sleep in anyway. Why do I waste my money on things that don't matter? Why do I keep buying stuff and filling my house with more stuff that I don't need? Or why do I imitate trends on social media, right? They're silly. We see these things on social media and we think that is so dumb. And then we spend an afternoon copying it and making something like this. ain't got nothing on me. They can let my camera roll out to the public. All it is is my cute cats. Okay, but why? Why do I do the things I do? 
I ask myself these questions a lot, right? What motivate? Wait, before I move on, don't get your phones out and go looking for me. I'm not on TikTok. That was fake. Okay. Why? <laughs> Why do I do the things I do? Why is it that I just go ahead and do these things? And then I start thinking it of other people, right? Like, what motivated him to say that? Or why did she make that post? Or why are they doing that? Like, things don't make sense to us sometimes. And we just do them. We don't stop and think, why am I doing this? We just do these things. And so I have all these whys going in my head, right? Why, why, why? What motivated me to do this? And why can I not bring myself to do that? Now, we are in week two of a teaching series called Jesus, period. Last week, Pastor Paul, my husband, set things in context for us. He reminded us about Jesus's birth and told us that all of these stories that we read in the Bible about Jesus have a historical and a political context. And that helps to corroborate it, right? It's evidence. It tells us that Jesus is a true person who lived in a real time in history and we can believe these stories. Today, we're going to be looking at a story that comes between the time when Jesus was about two and the time when Jesus is 30 and he enters the ministry. And in that span of 28 years, we have one story. This is the story, this one story. And so I think it's really important that we pay attention to this story because it's the only thing we know about Jesus growing up. And there is something for us to learn about who he is and who we are from this story. So we're going to listen to it now as Pastor Mike reads us the story on location in Israel. Luke chapter 2, verse 41 says, Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was with friends among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him. He was in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, discussing deep questions with them. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to do. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search? He asked. You should have known that I would be in my father's house. But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. So Jesus grew both in height and in wisdom, and he was loved by God and by all who knew him. Right. All right. It's important to understand, understand context of a story, right? Why, right? Why did his family go to this Passover festival in Jerusalem? And we can go all the way back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 16 to understand why they were doing this. There's this command here, and this is part of the Mosaic law. It says each year, Every man in Israel must celebrate these three festivals, the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of harvest, and the festival of shelters. On each of these occasions, all men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he chooses, but they must not appear before the Lord without a gift for him. All right, so according to Mosaic law, all of the men, all of the Israelite men had to go to Jerusalem 
three times a year to celebrate these three festivals. We call them Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They call it a little bit something different depending on the translation you read. But this is why his family was going. All right, so we're gonna hop back into the story that Pastor Mike just read. Verse 41, every year Jesus's parents, not Jesus's dad, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Now, men were required by law, but at this time, some of the teachers were saying, you know what, it would be a really good idea if the women did this too. And so Joseph and Mary, Jesus's parents, were devout Jews. We read this, we learn this, and they followed these ordinances. That's why they went. Verse 42 says, when Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. Now, this is important to note because 12 years old was the age when Jewish males became accountable to the law. So this is the first time that Jesus himself has to attend this festival by law. Okay, so Jesus is now accompanying his parents to the Passover festival. We learn nothing about that week. And then we find out what happens at the end of the week. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers, right? Then he doesn't show up and they start to get nervous. (laughs) So let's talk about this, this trip. When these people from Israel, the different neighboring parts of Israel would travel to Jerusalem for these festivals. They would travel in caravans. Why did they do this? They did it because of safety, okay? They did not have roads like we did. They had dirt paths. They did not have cars like we did. They were traveling mainly on foot. And so they were going from one community, probably several days journey to Jerusalem. They would all take tents and they would go together. So everybody from Nazareth would all travel together when they would go to Jerusalem for these festivals. They'd set up camp there, they'd hang out there. So now they're on their way home. So this entire caravan of everyone from Nazareth is on their way back. They get one day out of the city. Everybody's just laughing and talking and wasn't that a good festival and they're all going. Mary and Joseph just assume Jesus is with them. He's hanging out with his buddies. They get to where they're stopping for the night. They all pitch their tents. Everyone goes to their family's tent and suddenly Mary and Joseph don't have a kid in their tent. So they go looking for him, you know, tent to tent. Hey, have you guys seen Jesus? No, we didn't see Jesus. Are you sure he wasn't hanging out with James today? No, he wasn't hanging out with James today. Okay, next tent, knock, knock, knock. Now, can you imagine the conversation when they get back to their tent that night? They've gone tent to tent and they can't find their son and now they're frantic, right? Have you ever lost a child, even for a moment, even in a grocery store where they just like run around the end of a row and you come around the end and your kid isn't there? You remember that feeling? It's a terrible feeling, right? Our daughter, Kalena, has been great at hide and seek her entire life, since she was little. She's still good to this day. When she was about two, a friend of ours named Betsy was watching her in our church basement. Paul was working upstairs. Betsy was downstairs doing some cleaning in the church. And she turns around and Kalena's not there. So she starts calling, Kalena, Kalena running from room to room in the basement. She can't find Kalena and she's getting more and more frantic. And so she goes running outside into the parking lot thinking surely this two-year-old must have gotten out of the building and she's outside and she's running around and she can't find her. And so Betsy goes back in the building and upstairs, tears streaming down her face. She walks into my husband's office and says, Pastor Paul, Kalena's gone. I don't know where she is. I can't find her. 
Now, I cannot imagine the agony that she must have felt having to go into her pastor's office and say, I lost your precious daughter. Now, magnify that like a million fold. And we have Joseph and Mary in their tent that night going, uh, God, you entrusted us with the savior of the world. Do you have a plan B? Because we lost him. (laughs) Right? We lost your son. So they couldn't find him. So they go back to Jerusalem to find for him. And it's to find him, and it says three days later, they finally discovered him. So let's think about this. They have left Jerusalem. They travel away on foot for one whole day, stay there the night because it's too dangerous to travel at night. That's one day. Day two, they travel back to Jerusalem. I can only imagine the conversation or the silence on that trip. They get back to Jerusalem, and then they spend day three searching Jerusalem, not a small city, to find this boy that they have lost. Now, in case you were wondering, she's right there. They found Kalena. She was found. Okay. And they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. All were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic. Mary turns to her child And she starts to question his motivation, right? Just like I asked all those why questions. Why? Why, son? Why have you done this to us? We have been frantic. Children are supposed to obey their parents. When we said it's time to leave Jerusalem, we all leave. Why did you do this? And here we have the first recorded words of Jesus. So pay attention. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Now, depending on what translation we read, those words are a little bit different. And I think a better translation of must be in my father's house might be, I must be in the things of my father. I must be about my father's business. He's saying, in other words, why were you looking for me? Mom, I wasn't lost. I was right where I was supposed to be. Be. And now he's not sassing his mom. He's explaining to her he was being obedient. Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? In this moment, with these words, Jesus is gently reminding his parents who he is. Hey, earthly parents. You remember? I'm God. I'm God. I have a heavenly father. But we need to remember as we read this story that he's not just God, right? This is Jesus. He is also fully, completely human, just like you and me. His brain works like his, like ours. His body works like ours. His motivation works like ours. And so we need to look at him so we can understand us and what motivated him so that we can get motivated as well. Now, those who study the science of motivation have come up with this equation that will explain motivation to us. This is what it looks like. Motivation equals expectancy plus value minus cost. 
We're going to break this apart a little bit, okay? We're going to go word by word so we understand each piece of this equation. The first word here is expectancy. Expectancy is the belief that you can do a behavior and achieve a result. So this is you believing, I can do this. I can do this, right? I can make my goal. I can achieve this. This is something that is accomplishable for me. Or maybe it's, huh, I'm not so sure. 50-50, like maybe I can do this, but I don't, I don't know. Or maybe it's like, yeah, mm, nope, don't think I can do it. That's our expectancy. Do we believe we can do it eh, or no? So that is our expectancy in this equation. The second piece of this equation is the value. That's the perception that the task is rewarding or useful. That means, does this have any benefit to me? If I do this thing, what am I going to get out of it? Am I going to get a pat on the back? Am I going to get a at a girl? Am I going to get some sort of prize? Am I going to get more knowledge? Like, why would I learn complex trigonometry? What is the value to me, right? Like, what am I getting out of this? So something has to have value for us to want to do it, to be motivated to do it. The third piece of this equation here is the cost. Cost is the sense that what you're doing causes some kind of pain. There is something to be lost. Something is difficult about this. So when we look at it, it's not just can I do it or what is the benefit to me, but we also weigh in the cost. And this is usually what keeps us stuck and not being motivated to do something, right? So cost is what keeps me from exercising. Just gonna be honest. The pain of getting up early, hate it. The pain of sweating, disgusting. The pain that I will feel for three days after I exercise just isn't worth the value to me. Like, that's why I don't exercise. I can't motivate myself to do it. And quite frankly, I don't have high expectancy either. I've failed before, right? I try and exercise, I do it for a little while, and then I stop. So I'm not very motivated to exercise because I just don't feel like I can do it. And I feel like it's too costly. Now, when Jesus says these words, didn't you know, I must be about my father's business. He's saying, I must obey my father. I must do the work that he has set out for me to do. Jesus was motivated to do God's will in each and every moment, all the time. He had motivation to do what God was calling him to do, his father. Now we as Christians believe that when we accept the work that Jesus did for us on the cross, right? We accept that. We become Christians. We believe that in that moment, we are adopted into God's family. And what happens in that moment? God, Jesus's father, becomes our father as well, right? So we're going to talk just a moment about sin. A few months ago, maybe, Paul preached about sin and how this is missing the mark. You remember he talked about archery and the target, and when we hit the bullseye, that's when we're doing God's will. That's when we're doing what our Father has set out for us to do. But any time that we make the choice to live outside of that perfect will, any time that we choose not to do what God has deemed best for us, we're doing what's called sin. 
So if we think about that, we really think about, am I in each and every moment doing what God has set for me to do? Am I doing God's will? Am I doing his best for me? If we're honest, most of us, most of the time are sinning as we look at that bullseye, right? We're not often hitting the mark. Hopefully as we grow, we're hitting it more and more, but most of us are sinning a lot. But Jesus, who was fully human, just as we are, never missed the bullseye. He was always hitting that mark. Everything he did pleased God. So when we look to this year ahead, what if your goal for 2023 is simply to please God? What if that's it? That's your goal. That's your New Year's resolution. That's what you want to do. At the end of this year, you want to look back and say, I made my goal. I pleased God this year. Now, some of you are thinking, Karen, for real? Like, how do I even know what pleases God? How do I sin less? How do I please God more? That's fine for Jesus. Jesus was God. Like, he knew in every moment what he was to do. He knew in every moment what would please God. But what about us? Of course, Jesus did what God wanted him to do. But how do we do that? So we have this litmus test, okay? Very, very simple. This litmus test starts with a question. Is it loving? In each and every moment, we can ask ourselves, is what I am about to do loving? Am I going to love my brother, my sister, my father, my mother, my husband, my kids, my coworkers? Is what I am about to do loving? Because if it's not, it's not of God because God is love, right? So we know in every moment, simple question, is what I'm about to do, say, post Loving. If it's not, not God's will, don't do it. We're not going to hit that bullseye. Second question you can ask yourself, will it bring God glory? That's our purpose in this world, right? Is to bring God glory. So if what I am about to do is not going to bring him glory, or worse than that, it's going to steal his glory or take glory away from him, make him look bad because his child is behaving poorly, then we know I shouldn't do that. But beyond these questions, how do we know what God wants us to do? We've got to get to know God better. We have to know him more. Get in the word. We have to know God better if we're going to know his will for us in each and every moment. Jesus knew God. And as we get to know God more, we will know his will more. So let's go back to that motivation equation. Motivation equals expectancy plus value minus cost. Let's look at this. Let's think for just a moment about Jesus's example. How was he motivated in every moment to do what God had asked of him? Let's talk through this. Expectancy. Jesus had to expect, don't move on yet, thank you. Jesus had to expect that in this moment, whatever God is asking me to do, I can do it right? He had to believe, I can do what God's asking me to do. He also had to believe that what he was doing had great, tremendous value, right? In every moment, he knew that if I obey God, I'm going to bring my Father glory. That is tremendous value. But beyond that, he knew that what he was going to do had tremendous value and blessing for each of us. Every person who was to walk, he had the value of, I'm going to bless all these people, with the chance at the forgiveness of their sins. 
But then he, just like we, had to think about the cost, right? The cost for him was great. He suffered humiliation and scorn. People yelled at him, spit in his face. People tried to kill him, and eventually they did. The cost for him was going to be taking the sins of the world and bearing them in his body, the weight that he had, the cost he had. If anyone was ever going to be unmotivated to follow what God wanted them to do, here it is right here, Jesus And yet that value and that expectancy outweighed it in this equation for him. And so in every moment, he was motivated to do what God asked of him. So why do we fail? None of us will ever pay such a cost as the sins of the world on our shoulders. Why do we fail? We sabotage ourselves. We sabotage ourselves because we listen to the lies of the Satan. Let's look at this again for ourselves expectancy. We listen to the lie of the Satan and we say, I can't do that. I can't do what you're asking of me, God. That feels too hard. That feels too big. I'm not equipped. I cannot do these things. I can't be holy. I can't be righteous. I can't make good choices all the time. I can't do this, God. I cannot live this way. And we believe that lie, that this is impossible for us to do, right? I can't do it. And you know what? We're kind of right. We can't do it alone. But God is able to do these things that he's asking of us through us. He is able. In Philippians 4.13, it says, For I can do everything that God asks of me, everything within his will, through Christ who gives me strength. I can do it. The truth is that what God asks of us We can't accomplish because we have his help. Let's go to the end of the equation, the cost, because this is where we always get stuck, isn't it? We believe that the cost is too great. Whatever it is that God is asking of me, God, you are asking too much. I don't want to give up these things. I don't want to give up my pride. I don't want to give up my time. I don't want to give up my friends. I don't want to give up these activities that I really enjoy, but I know are outside of your will. We don't want to give these things up. We believe that the cost is too great. And you're right. The cost is great. In fact, Jesus himself said, Don't begin until you count the cost in Luke 14, 28. And he was speaking to people about becoming his disciples. Don't become his disciple until you consider the cost. It is costly. There will be things in this world that we will lose. There will be things that will pain us. It will be difficult to follow him. You will lose things. You will lose relationships. There will be pain. The cost is great. But the reward is greater. The reward is greater. You see, I skipped over value because I want us to really think about this. We need to believe that what God asks of me is rewarding and that while it has a great cost, I will be rewarded for my obedience. Scripture talks about this all over the place, about the reward of obeying God. In Matthew 19, it says, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. I don't know about you, but I get chills when I read this 
What we're asked to give up does not compare to what we will receive. When we get to heaven, we will have this giant reward waiting for us. A hundred times as much as anything we could give up on this earth. But our reward isn't just treasures in heaven. Our reward begins now. John 14, 21 says, Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Reveal myself to each of them. Our reward is greater. Jesus is the reward. We have got to believe that Jesus is the greatest reward we could ever receive. Having more of Jesus in my life means I have more peace. It means I have more love. It means I have more stability. It means I have everything I could ever need. We have to believe that Jesus is the greatest reward we could ever receive. So it's time for us to get motivated, church. It's time for us to think about this equation and think, I can do it. I expect that I can do what Jesus is calling me to do. I can do God's will in each and every moment because I'm not doing it alone. I have Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit. I have God on my side. I have the power I need to accomplish what's being asked of me. We think, yeah, it's going to cost me something. But that cost is small compared to what I am going to receive. The value is far, far greater. Anything that I have to give up to do what God's best is for me is little compared to what I'm going to receive. It's time for us to get motivated, church. At the end of this year, I want our community, I want friends, family, people who watch what you do to look at you to look at what you're doing, the way you're speaking, the way you're posting on social media. And we want them to look at you and ask this question, just like Mary asked Jesus, why did you do this? This makes no sense. Why did you do this? And our answer, just like Jesus, will be, didn't you know? I must be about my father's business. Let's make our goal for 2023 simply to please God. Church, let's get motivated. Heavenly Father, God, I pray over everyone in this room, everyone watching online. God, give us the motivation to live inside of your will, to please you in each and every moment. God, help us to count that cost and to realize that the cost is so small compared to the value of having more of you in our lives. Help us to believe that you will give us the power to do what you're calling us to do and help us to do it, God. Give us the motivation. Give us the strength. God, may we please you more this year. In your son's name we pray. Amen.